Are you ready for this? Oh, I was born ready. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Hello, my friends. We have returned for another very special episode of Too Scared to Sleep after taking a week hiatus because of the Zodiac Killer and his inability to handle cold Texas weather. What a piece of shit. What a piece of shit. God, we fucking hate that guy. Hey, Ted Cruz, if you're listening, because I know we're so famous. Yeah, eat a bag of dicks, bro. Oh, God. Get fucked, man. I know. Just on hate alone can we go for, like, at least 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, the fucking snowpocalypse, snowmageddon, it was horrible. Yeah. What was your experience like, Dylan? Because I got plenty to talk about. Yeah, I know you do. Mine was actually relatively uneventful. Um, we got pretty heavy snow, obviously. Uh, it was kind of fun for a couple minutes, get out there, run around, throw some snowballs, and then get way too cold and come back inside and watch WandaVision. Until I heated up enough to go step outside again. Because I just really enjoy looking at snow. I like watching it come down. I like looking at it. It looks like a cold little blanket. And I love that. Um, The boil water notice sucked. Yeah. That was a huge inconvenience. Yeah, that was horrible. Um, I will say I got lucky in that we did not lose power at my apartment. Because we're on the same grid as the hospital. Yeah, nice of you. And luckily our area was okay. So, very thankful for that, but I know things did not go quite as well for you, Jake. No, absolutely not. So, my my whole thing started, um, we had rolling blackouts at my house from Monday to Wednesday. One hour on, one hour off, all day long, and then three hours on, three hours off after about like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. So, it was a mess. It was a fucking nightmare. Oh, yeah. Trying to plan your life around knowing that you only have an hour worth, worth of electricity. And then the the entire time, I'm trying to like lessen the pool that I have on the grid. So I, I unplugged everything unnecessarily, you know, didn't have anything hardly turned on. I was just sitting in my room trying to charge my phone in between that time is a mess. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I had problems with my ex is that was also a big problem because oh, yeah. for a whole week we had decided it happened. You know, everybody knows it happened here. Um, the day after Valentine's day on the 15th was the first day that we started having electric electricity issues, but we had planned, um, she was going to go with her dude, on a Valentine's Day date on Sunday evening. And I was going to have the kids pretty much the whole day. And we had, me and the kids had already talked about making uh, personal heart-shaped pizzas and um, a heart-shaped, I was going to make them a heart-shaped cake and stuff like that. So I had planned this whole thing. I'd bought extra groceries just to do all of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, she messaged me on Sunday morning and she's like, she says, I, I don't want to go to work. She was, she had to go to work at the lake and she didn't want to drive in this weather. I was like, okay, well, you know, you don't have to drive. And she says, I don't think I want the kids out in this weather either, which is fucking stupid because the temperature hadn't dropped that much yet Yeah, the, on Sunday. It, it had wasn't not, that And bad. it hadn't snowed yet either. No. So not only that, but they only live five minutes away from where I am right now. And it's not like it's a dangerous five minutes. Like I can understand if we lived, you know, three hours away from each other and someone's going to have to drive that entire time. But, you know, if I needed to, I could have spent an hour driving 10 miles an hour just to be safe to get to their house and then yeah. back over here just to have them. And so she made a big deal about that back and forth on text messages. I said, fine, can I bring all the pizza stuff over and the cake and we can do it at your house? She said, that's fine. Actually, she suggested that. She's like, I'll just go upstairs. You can, you know, you can just do everything in my kitchen. And so I said, okay. So I had already, I had worked out and I said, okay, I'm going to go and take a shower. I'm going to put the cake in right now so it, could, so it can bake. And then it'll be cool enough so that we can decorate it when I get there. 
So uh, it all works out to plan. You know, the cake is ready, and I pack up a whole grocery bag full of pizza shit to take over there, like everything to make pizzas, because my son wanted to make a Hawaiian pizza. My daughter wanted to do pepperoni and black olives. I was going to do Supreme, because I have all those pieces, all those. So I drive all the, I drive over there, and it's the, the roads are fine for the yeah. five minutes that it takes me to get there. The roads are perfectly fine. And I pull up into her driveway and I get out of the car and I've got this big grocery bag in one hand and the cake in the other. And I step out onto her driveway and the fucking driveway was icy. And I slipped yep. and caught myself with my bad leg. Oh, God. Right. And I didn't fall, but I, I definitely used it to brace myself. So that sucked. Yeah. Right? So immediately that puts me in a bad mood. Not like a terrible bad mood, but I'm like, this is such bullshit. This is the worst part about the, like, this is the most dangerous part is getting out of the car and getting to your house. So I walk in the house and I, and I said to her, I said, I said, the most dangerous part about driving over here was getting out of the car in your driveway. It's the only part that was icy. Yeah. And I look over and on the de- on the dining room table is a family pack from Chicken Fucking Express. Which, for those of you that don't know, is literally right across the street from Jake's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It is half a mile from the front door of Chicken Express to my front door. So this woman, the mother of my children, who thought that the roads were too dangerous for her to drive to work, thought that the roads were too dangerous for me to go pick up my kids, was fine getting in her car and driving practically to my house to pick up fried fucking chicken for these kids, even though I had told her that I was coming over with pizza stuff. When you specified we have plans involving making pizza Mm -hmm. and decorating cake, Mm-hmm. so i decorated the cake and i didn't want to be there so i just left i was like you know what we can just do this some other time and i'm just gonna go home because the roads are gonna i was like i use that excuse the roads are gonna get worse mm-hmm. so i came home and i just spent the rest of the day by myself so she's upset at me she's texting me we got into a text argument so she doesn't talk to me on monday even though the you know the, the power's out and all this other stuff and i'm trying to call to see how she's doing see if the kids need anything she didn't message me until like Tuesday afternoon and we're talking and we're trying to figure out what they need and they didn't really need anything. And then Wednesday, she starts this bullshit where she's not actually asking me to go to the grocery store for her, but she's implying that she's running out of food. And, oh, I, you know, I wish I could go to HEB and I wish I could go to Walmart and see if they've got milk and eggs. And I'm like, that's when you respond with, damn, that sucks. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, now, if it was only her, obviously. But it's my kids, and I'm like, well, maybe they need something. That's true. You got kids. We had got up on Wednesday, and we went just for shits and giggles mostly. That's true, yeah. To go to Walmart, and they had nothing. We waited waited in a line to get in, and we walk in, and there is no bread. There is no eggs. No meat. There is no bread. There are no eggs, meat, bacon, chicken, ground beef. um, What else? Cheese. Yeah. I had some stuff I needed to get from the store because I didn't realize what was coming, so I didn't really stock up mm-hmm. on anything. Mm-hmm. But I got in there out of this little list that I had. I got two things. I got frozen pizza and I got soda. And those Walmart frozen pizzas, the only ones they had left, I see why they were the only ones that were left. I did not even finish half of one of those. It was disgusting. <laughs> So that was a waste of a dollar a piece. You are a human raccoon, just like I said. You eat trash. At least I didn't finish it, though. Oh, well, there you go. I have some standards. Here's to growth. (laughs) Hats off to you, Dylan. Anyway, so we went to the store to see what was there. Oh, the funniest part was we had to to walk in together. Oh, yeah. Sharing a basket so they would let the both of us in. And do you remember what I said to you as we walked into Walmart? 
No, I don't. I looked at you and I said, don't run off. You don't want to end up like Adam Walsh. Oh my God, that's right. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. I went full dad mode on you and gave you that cautionary warning. You don't want to be like Adam Walsh, Don't do end you? up like Adam Walsh. Oh my God. All they I ever found of him was that. his head and his hands in a basket. <laughs> or a box. And that's not even true. That's not even accurate. Go back to listen to our episode. Episode four, season one, when I talk about Adam Walsh and why that's a funny joke because my parents used to say it to us all the time. Anyway... So then later on that day, she starts messaging me and she's like, I really wish that I had eggs. I really wish that we had milk. And it's I'm like, like, yeah, me too, fucker. Yeah, me. I said, I said, okay, so what are you trying to tell me here? What are you saying? I said, are you, and I told her, I said, are you waiting for Santa Claus or Jesus Christ to miracle these things to your house? <laughs> because if you really need these things, you need to plan ahead just like everybody else did. Either buy them beforehand because we knew this weather was coming. I'm looking at you, fucking Ted Cruz. Or... You know, wait early, early, early and be there when the store opens and rush in there and get what you need. Like you can't just, we did. Yeah, you just can't imply that you want me to stop working because by Wednesday, I was already trying to get back to work and I was able to get back to work on Thursday. That was when it was Thursday. So I'm like yeah, balls Thursday. deep in trying to get my work, trying to get caught up after missing three days worth of work, right? And she's messaging me like I can just, oh, run over to H-E-B like there's not a two-hour line to get into the grocery store. And still there's nothing there, you know, and just yeah. to pop in. So I grabbed like I grabbed a loaf of bread that I had here and sandwich meat and cheese and the three-quarters of a gallon of milk that I had here. And I drive it over to her house and she's like, they're not going to eat sandwiches. And I'm like, are you fucking serious right now? I said, then what are you going to eat? She goes, oh, well. And she's got an older daughter who lives with her who's 20-something years old. And she says, oh, she's just going to get us takeout from one of the restaurants who's doing family packs. I'm like, why the fuck am I here right now then? Then why? Yeah, exactly. If you were just going to get fucking takeout, what was the whole point of... So And if somebody's willing to drive to go get takeout, mm-hmm. just drive to HEB. So that was my frustration last week. This week, it was crazy. It's fucking insane. All the snow melted on Saturday, and by Sunday, it was sunny and beautiful and, like, 67 degrees here. Yeah, and, and next everybody's day, out right hanging out, and everybody's at the park in short sleeve shirts and in shorts, acting like nothing happened, like people didn't freeze to death. And then I know people in Seguin who got, a, got noticed that their bill is going to, that their electricity bill is going to be, like, $5,000 or some shit. Yeah, I was hearing about that. So ERCOT was trying to like bump up the bill for a whole bunch of people. Um, hopefully they don't actually do that because it's fucking ridiculous. How are you going to charge somebody five thousand fucking dollars when they only had power for thirty minutes at a time? Mm-hmm. Like a total of maybe two hours in a span of forty-eight hours. That's fucking ridiculous. The whole privatized fucking energy system in Texas is a bunch of garbage, nonsense, bullshit. Thanks, Republicans. Oh man. I I will go off on a tangent on this. I've already done it like four different times. I know. We posted on I posted on our on our too scared yeah Instagram about it too. I was just so pissed off. Anyway, that's enough. I don't know. I got nothing else except to be to to say that I'm just glad it's over. Yeah. I if not for the water and power issues, if it was just like cool snow, having fun, that would be tight as fuck. I love snow. I hate everything that came with that though. Fuck you, Ted Cruz. Fuck, Fuck you, you Ercot. 
Fuck off, Zodiac Killer. It is so funny. That whole thing is just... Like, he invited his college roommate. His wife was inviting her friends, her little squad from the neighborhood. It's just like, oh, God, I fucking hope he... I hope he has to resign. I wish that he'd already resigned. Fucking ran off to Mexico and then came back and threw his daughters under the bus and said, oh, they weren't comfortable with being here, so we left because of them. And and left his dog at home. I know. Snowball. Fucking poor little guy. I feel so bad for that little dog. Not only does he have to live with Ted Cruz, then he gets abandoned by Ted Cruz. Yeah, it was horrible. Anyway, enough about that. Dylan... Let's bring this heat, baby. Let's bring this thunder. Let's do it. Let's bring that Hail Satan. Hail Satan. WKRX. Greater Greater Cincinnati. Cincinnati. All All the metal metal hits. hits. Hail Hail Satan. Satan. That's right. Fuck yeah! Hell yeah! All right, you ready? Your topic or my topic? My topic. Let's do it. Hell yeah! I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Let's do it. But first, I'm gonna get my root beer from the fridge. <laughs> Jesus, I'm gonna take this. I got a fancy root beer. You do have a fancy root beer. It's Australian. Oh my god. You know who else is Australian? Margot Robbie? Love Margot Robbie. I have returned before Jake has come back. So it's just you and me, listener, hanging out. Just the two of us. Meow. Oh, wait, there he is. He's back. Really? There's the man, the you man, the myth, the legend. Me. You better not be throwing me under the bus. I would never. Bullshit. I'm going to listen to this later, and it's going to be all about <laughs> me going to the bathroom. Don't worry. You'll listen to it when I don't edit any of this out. That's right. Hold on. i got to figure out how to pull out, then up. <laughs> you Woo. have to learn how to pull out. It's got this funky little key ring thing on it it's a pull tab it's from the early 80s ah there we go smells like root beer interesting flavor palette it's a lot fruitier than i expected oh it's fruity all right what you're doing right now it's got some uh, hey fuck off i'm working on my sommelier profile god i fucking hate those guys come on man Hmm. it's bizarre there's a there's definitely like a citrus to it that I wasn't expecting. I guess it's probably the ginger. Oh my God. Ah, citric acid, yeah. Okay, anyway. All right, are you ready for this? You've wasted enough time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, here we go. Let's hear it. Jake, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a series of questions, actually. Yes, I would. Of course I have. Only twice. And I was really, really drunk. Okay. I actually answered them all. Good for you. Blind Nello. That's like on spades or <laughs> hearts or whatever. Okay. Do you like intrigue? Yes, I would. Tales of family love and class warfare? Of course I have. Violent retribution? Only twice. Do you like grisly haunting murder? Just this once when I was really drunk. Mm-hmm. What did I tell you? It's <laughs> I perfect. Told you. you got it. You actually got it. All right, well, my friend, then you may enjoy hearing the story that's known in French history as one of the most shocking and violent crimes of the 20th century. Bum, bum, bum. I wish you could see the smile on my face. Let's hear it. What is it? What is it? What is it? So, born to an unstable and abusive household, the story of the Poppin sisters, Leia and Christine, goes pretty much right where you expect. 
but we're here for the ride anyway. The Pop we're talking about the Poppin' Sisters. P-A-P-I-N. This is all set in France. I am going to butcher the pronunciation of a whole bunch of things. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Stick with it. <laughs> oh, God. No, it's spelled P-A-P-I-N. So, not Poppins. All right. Let's hear it. That would be cooler, though. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the, the medicine, medicine go, go down. down. Oh, you're singing too? <gasps> we found the song he likes. Oh that's shit! Liter- no, I don't like oh, it. Oh god, where's my remote? We'll turn on Disney Plus right now. Stop recording. We'll no, watch Mary Poppins. No, we're not doing this. Oh. Put the remote away. <clears throat> I don't. I don't even oh. know the whole song. I just know that one line. Are you serious? Yes. I was not a Mary Poppins kid. Look at me. Do I look like somebody who liked Mary Poppins? I feel like you look like somebody who liked Mary Poppins and something horrible happened to you. Mary Poppins punched me in the throat. That's not true. Don't don't you ever say that about her. God, Emily Blunt is Mary Poppins. I was going to say the Emily Blunt version. Va va voom. Oh my goodness. I mean, I really liked Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins and then just... Yeah. All right, let's go. People know too much about me. Yes, we do. All right. So their father, Gustav, fell in love with their mother, Clemence. It is said that when they fell in love, Clemence was actually already in the middle of an extramarital affair, which which she broke off to be with Gustav. It's always promising. Yeah. Everybody knows that if you start dating somebody who's already cheating on their lover, that's going to go really well for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's going to go super good. Yeah, it's, there's no way this is going to end in tears. No, definitely not. not. This, this is just this is, this this it's the love story of the, for the ages. Oh yes. All right. So when Clements and Gustav fell in love, uh, Clements supposedly broke off the affair to be with Gustav, but after uh, they had gotten married and Clements had given birth to their first child. Gustav had suspicions about her affair not being over, and he grew more and more intense in his paranoia about this. Of course he did. So the timeline is Clements is having an affair. Clements and Gustav fall in love. Then Clements gets pregnant. Gustav and Clements marry. She gives birth, but Gustav still doesn't think that she's all his. All right? Mm Mm-hmm. In order to make sure that she could no longer continue her supposed affair, Gustav accepted a job in the city of Le Mans, and upon hearing the news that they would be uprooting their lives and moving to a new town, can you guess what Clemens did? She started sleeping around. No, she threatened to kill herself. (gasps) Which did not help her case at all. It really only made Gustav think, oh hey, she's definitely cheating on me now. (laughs) Because if you say hey, we're going to be not living in this town anymore, and your response is, I will blow my brains out in front of you. That's not a great look, in case you didn't know. That's that whole, man, she must have been really hot to deal with that crazy behavior. I guess so. And that's not just women, that's men too. The yeah. better looking you are, the more, the, the better off, the, the more the erratic, more aberrant behavior you can, away with. you can get away with. Yeah. We're obviously on the side where we have to be perfect motherfucking gentlemen. <laughs> The both of us. Yeah. We don't get away with shit. No, we do not. No, we do not. But we're just trying our best. We're doing what we can out here. That's right. So after a lot of convincing, uh, Gustav did manage to convince her to move with him to Le Mans. And as you might expect, the relationship was done no favors by this. No, of course not. 
Clemence grew increasingly distant from her husband and her child at the time, and Gustav started to hit the bottle pretty hard to cope with the pain. So now you have emotionally distant mother and drunk father. <laughs> Recipe for success if we've ever heard one mm-hmm. on this podcast. <clears throat> That's right. All of our good stories start with an emotionally distant mother and an alcoholic father. Yes, they do. You can do. throw in the the, the, the the trifecta as if they're re- deeply religious. Oh, yeah. And then you've got the perfect recipe. The perfect storm. you got alcoholism, emotional distance, and religious trauma. Damn, that's the perfect storm. It's basically my childhood. But keep going. <laughs> so as Clements grew more distant, um, she eventually started to refuse to show any sort of love or affection towards her family. She actually made the decision to send their firstborn, Amelia, away to a convent to become a nun after her father supposedly raped her at the age of 10. Ooh. Yeah. We've heard this story before, and it never goes well. No, it doesn't. But you might be surprised to find out that Amelia is not the character that we are focusing on in this story. So, Amelia has to go through this horrible life, then she gets sent away to a convent to become a nun. Then, she gave birth to Christine, who was born in 1905, then Leah, six years later, in 1911. So, got rid of daughter number one, turned around and had two other daughters six years apart. But, did she get any more emotionally available or warm? No. Of course not. This is too scared to sleep. What are you talking about? Yeah, these aren't the stories we tell. Absolutely. If you want not. some of that? Go to fucking Paul, Paul Harvey or Garrison Keeler. Not here. <laughs> exactly. You want happy and joy? Go over to my brother, my brother, and me. All right. So while the girls lived with their parents, they saw their fair share of domestic violence and sexual assault as their parents' marriage and mental state declined rapidly. Mm-hmm. So. Of course, eventually the mother decided to send those sisters away too. This time not to a convent, though, just to a regular old orphanage. So we barely sidestepped the religious trauma, like, by a millimeter. (laughs) It's like, it almost hit. It really did. But they were sent away to a orphanage. Now, as the sisters grew up together in the orphanage and their unstable household, they proved to be inseparable. Their bond was incredibly strong, even though they were rarely seen speaking to one another. So many people reported that it seemed like they had a bizarre telepathic connection with each other, as they would just sit with each other in silence for long periods of time. They preferred the company of each other over the company of pretty much anybody else. Which, relatable. I don't have a sibling, but that's me at myself. I was about to say yes. You and your reflection. Not my reflection. I don't like perceiving myself. Oh my god, stop it. I actively avoid mirrors. I'm kidding. (laughs) You're right, though. So eventually, while in the orphanage system, the girls came of age to become part of the workforce. And, given their connection, they demanded to work together as a pair. Which, you know, for some reason, it was granted to them. So they managed to get a few different jobs, mostly as maids and servants for wealthier households, as that was the majority of the jobs given to orphans at the time. Right. Until, eventually, in 1926, they landed the job of live-in servants in a large two-story house owned by the Lancelin family, which consisted of the father, René, the mother, Leonie, and the daughter, Genevieve, with Christine, the older sister, serving as the cook, and Leah as the housekeeper. Got it. So, the sisters were 
pretty well known for being hard workers despite um, Leone's strict rules and inspection of the food and the cleaning. Um, they were treated really well, actually. The family ate the same food as the two girls. Um, the girls lived in nice rooms that included internal heating, and they were paid fairly for their time. Um, the sisters did quite well with the family and were known to be excellent, dedicated employees. There were actually a couple of the like other rich neighbors that were envious of the Lancelin family because of how good and loyal Christine and Leia actually were, which is unusual. You know, that doesn't happen that often. No, not, not for the characters in our stories. No, not really. It doesn't usually end that well or even go that well. Absolutely not. Um, but the sisters did continue to tend to be antisocial. Um, they were perfectly fine. I mean, they went to church every Sunday. Um, they kept to themselves, usually spending their breaks just in their rooms, away from everyone else, or just talking to each other. Um, so didn't do a whole lot of socializing, but did some really good work. Um, the household was a little bit unusual, though. Regardless of their hard work and years in service to the family, the sisters apparently av never actually spoke to Renee. Um, he just, like, didn't interact with them that much. They only ever communicated with his wife, Leonie, and her daughter, Genevieve. I saw one website say that they only communicated, like, sort of indirectly with Renee, like, through letters. Nobody else said that, so I don't know if that's true or not. Mm. It feels kind of weird. <laughs> like... Like Wesley Snipes on the on the set of Blade Trinity. God, that fucking guy, <laughs> just refusing to open his eyes. I know. I just read that. To, I sent that to you, didn't I? No, I don't Did think I so. I just, I've yeah. I've read a bunch of shit about him doing that. David stuff S. Goyer, that. who wrote who directed Blade Trinity, was like the guy would refuse to speak to us except through post-it notes that he um, that he signed from Blade. Yep, and he only ever referred to Ryan Reynolds as that cracker. Mm-hmm. What a man, Wesley Snipes. Oh, my God. He's so crazy. What a guy. What a guy. Um, all right, let's see. So, uh, and as mentioned, um, the wife, Leonie, was pretty strict, and she performed routine inspections. Um, she was not afraid to critique the food, and more than once, she performed white glove checks in the house. Mm. Where she just put on a clean white glove and wiped surfaces down to see if there was any dust, just to make sure everything had been dusted. Like in Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan. Okay. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> okay. I just decided I'm going to throw out as many geeky references as I can. You've been doing that since season one, my this friend. This is my job, baby. Uh, let's see. So, despite the strict rules of the family, um, the relationship between the employers and employees was never reported as being abusive or hostile. All was actually well in in the home. Until one fateful night. Until one fateful night. Of course. God, here we go. It was, as so many good stories are, a dark and stormy night. When Renee Lancelin returned home to a dark house, seeing only faint candlelight from the window of the servant's room. Not entirely unusual, as they had an iron that was broken and had been giving them trouble with the electricity. It continuously had blown the fuses, but they had sent it off to be repaired. But, when he found that all the doors to his home were locked, he became suspicious and worried, and he left to retrieve the local authorities. Shortly after returning home and having the police pry the doors open, they saw something they could never have expected. It was a scene that was later described as, quote, an orgy of blood. Oh, God. Bet you weren't expecting to hear that phrase, were you? 
No, it was I was not an orgy of blood. It was described to a psychologist as quote an orgy of blood. On February 2nd, 1936, Liani and her daughter Genevieve arrived home at around 5.30 p.m. to a dark house. She knew they were having issues with the equipment in the house, but it was supposed to have been repaired and picked up by Christine earlier that day. She was very upset that their home didn't have any power and confronted Christine about the issue. Christine had picked up the piece and tried to explain to Leonie that it apparently had just broken again. She said the repairman said that there wasn't any issue with it, so there was nothing to fix, and just gave it back to her. Leonie found this answer unacceptable and began screaming at Christine, which caused something in Christine to snap. It caused it to snap. It had been building up for years and years, and finally, it came to a head. Christine grabbed a pot that was nearby them and smashed it against Leonie's head as hard as she could. Oh, shit. No hesitation. No qualms about it. Grab the pot into the brain. Just drop some motherfucker right That's there. Right. You know what, motherfucker? The day is today. The day is today, brother. So hearing... I have a limit, and I just hit that limit. <laughs> God. Goddamn right. So, hearing the commotion, both Genevieve and Leia came into the room. Genevieve had just been in the other room, and Leia was upstairs in their sleeping quarters, so she had to come down the stairs. Okay. Um, but by the time Genevieve, arri- Genevieve arrived first, and upon seeing Genevieve, Christine pounced, beating Genevieve, and gouging her eyes out with her bare hands. Oh, shit! Shit went from real to realist real quick. Oh, my God. Hit the old lady with the pot, turn to the daughter, beat the shit out of her, gouge her eyes out with your fucking hands. This is like that movie Possessor that we watched. Yes, it is. Oh, those Cronenberg, those, those Cronenbergs are crazy. God, I love those they guys. They are our kind of crazy. Hell yeah, they are. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. So, Leia finally came downstairs, um, and she now has entered the fold. Player four has entered the game. I was game. about to say that. Yeah, has entered the match. Uh, she instantly joined in on the side of her sister. Of course she did. Of course she did. Tag and tag. Mm-hmm. It's like Mortal Kombat finishing fatality. So Christine, while still attacking Genevieve, urged Leia to bash Leonie's head into the ground and rip her eyes out too. And Leia complied without hesitation. I was about to say, you know what? Yeah, I get that. Grabbed her by the head, slammed her head into the ground repeatedly, and then also used her hands to gouge out the mother's eyes. This is like in Tombstone when Virgil Earp says you gotta back your brother's play. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is horrible and graphic, and I love it. I can't even... Yeah, the even articles that I read specified that uh, Leia had been beating the woman and ripped her eyes from her head. I just really liked that particular phrasing. Would you look at that? <laughs> she can't. Um, so when the two Lancelin girls had been incapacitated, but still alive and conscious during all of this, Christine went downstairs into the kitchen to get a knife and a hammer. She brought them back up to her sister, and the siblings then took their time beating the two women to death. Oof. Yeah. So, Leonie and Genevieve are both laying there. They can't do anything because they're disoriented and they no longer have eyeballs. And then they just start getting stabbed and beaten to death with a they hammer. They were still alive. They were still alive. Crawling around. And conscious. 
oh. trying to escape. Oh my god. This is so graphic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Striking so the two sisters struck blows mostly to the face and the neck area. Um basically they just keep they kept beating until Leone and Genevieve were described as unrecognizable. Their heads were nothing more than wet craters of gore and bone shards. Jesus fucking Christ. And to add further insult to injury, they rubbed Leone down with her daughter's menstrual blood. Don't know why. Don't know why they had to do that. As if but there's I not already to... enough blood, but whatever. Just I mean... needed to make sure I threw that little tidbit in there for you. <sighs> Oof. Even worse. Let's just keep going. Oof. Oh, yeah. Then. So they finished up with their uh, their fun activity there. Uh, they finished up beating the sister or the mother and the daughter. Uh, then they left the bodies in the living room. They calmly went upstairs, cleaned themselves off, locked every door in the house, little, lit a candle in their room, and waited. So when Renee, the father, and the police entered the room, what they saw was the mutilated corpses of the two women, their faces caved in with slash marks all across their body, lying in a pool of their own blood, with teeth and skull fragments and a bloody knife scattered all across the floor. Yep. You may think that's going to be the weirdest the story gets. No. Apparently not. Apparently not. So they obviously ran upstairs to see if they could locate the, the two sisters, and they did find our sisters laying in bed in a room illuminated only by candlelight. They were naked in bed together, bloody hammer by the bedside, and showed no signs of remorse or emotion. They quickly stood up, admitted to what they had done, and were escorted away by police. Jesus Christ. Something snapped inside these women. Mm-hmm. Luckily, their confession resulted in a speedy trial. But despite the fact that both women were grown adults and both had equal responsibility in the gruesome murders, Christine was sentenced to death by guillotine and Leo was sentenced to 10 years in prison, of which she only served eight for exemplary behavior. Only eight years. But the other one was... Okay, did they kill her? You're about to find out. So the two women were separated in prison, so they wouldn't be able to see each other. And it's said that when they were separated, both of them displayed extreme depression and anxiety. And they were actually allowed to see each other only one time during their prison stays. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. During which time, it's reported that they threw each other into each other's arms and embraced tightly for as long as they could. Now, all of this coupled with their incredibly intense connection... And the fact that they were found naked in bed together on the night of the murders has led a lot of people to believe that they had an incestuous relationship. Which admittedly would not be that surprising if they were in a household in which incestuous sexual assault was a common occurrence. Mm -hmm. But it was never actually revealed. Um, Nothing ever came about where anybody could say for sure. But the evidence seems pretty clear there, I think. Now, as... With a case this gruesome and bizarre, obviously it's going to get a lot of attention. Um, a lot of the local scholars and intellects started following this case pretty heavily. Yes. Um, and upon reading into the case, they found that 
the fit of violence could very well have been representative of the class struggle at the time. So now we're tying it into that class warfare aspect I mentioned. Uh, They were thinking that the servants just got tired of the mean-spirited masters and the general dynamic of the master-servant arrangement and took out the building frustration of serving the high class in just a really terrible way. Um, As a way of trying to defend the women on the basis of insanity, uh, given their violent family history and abusive upbringing being fueled by strict employers. So, I mean, they have a lot of evidence to suggest that this was to be expected, basically. Mm -hmm. But despite all the buzz and all the pushing for some sort of insanity defense or understanding of these women... uh, The trial went forward, and after an intense psychiatric evaluation, the two sisters were both deemed sane, although it was theorized that the younger sister, Leah, was in a worse place mentally, and it seemed like her personality was only an imitation of the personality of her older sister. A lot of people talked about, especially when they were separated, how poorly they reacted. Um, Basically, it seemed like these two girls were one soul, just in two bodies. You know, they were so similar, and they were so deeply, intensely connected. Um, It was just a really bizarre way to act, you know? Um, But I liked what they said about two souls, or one soul and two bodies. (laughs) One soul, two bodies. That's just morbid and creepy, and also hopelessly romantic enough to capture us. They're sisters. Capturing. I don't know, I'll say hopeless romantic. But, you know, to each their own, I guess. So, um, the trial moved forward and the verdicts were sent down. Uh, they ended up charging Leia as an accomplice and, like I said, sentenced Christine to death. Now, while the two women were in prison, as I said, both began to experience severe mental distress. Uh, but Christine, the older sister, definitely took it the hardest. She showed violent fits of madness in which she tried to claw her own eyes out because she's just got something with the eyeballs, I guess. Um, she had extreme depression, anxiety. Uh, she threw herself into these violent fits, um, and eventually she just refused to eat. And in 1937, she died of starvation in her cell after refusing to eat. So she was sentenced to death by guillotine, did not get her head cut off. She just didn't eat and then died. Oh my god. Yeah. Cachexia. That's what I read too. What? She just wasted away. Mm-hmm. And uh, the younger sister, Leia Pappen, was released in 1941, as I said, serving only eight years of her 10-year sentence because of exemplary behavior and psychiatric help. And shortly after, she reconnected with her estranged birth mother and began her new life with her. Uh, She changed her name and lived out her life pretty normally. We don't know what she changed her name to, really, but she just changed it to something she found a couple different odd jobs working throughout france Um, she held steady jobs for a long time and cared for her mother um, before passing away now something interesting i found was there was a documentary made about the Papin sisters i didn't watch it because it was a french documentary but it was suspected that leia had actually died sometime around like the 80s or 90s because nobody had heard from her Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't until they started recording this documentary that they actually found her. So this documentary was the reason they were able to find out that this woman was still alive. Holy shit. They found Leia Pappen and she was just living out her life. She apparently had suffered a stroke, which left her partially paralyzed. And that's why nobody had heard from her. 
because she wasn't getting out and she couldn't speak anymore because of the stroke. Oh my God. But they actually found her and were able to like show how she was living, you know, basically give the definitive proof that she was still alive. Um, and she ended up passing away of natural causes in 2001. She was 90 years old. And lived her entire life with this shit. Mm-hmm. But she apparently never showed signs of violence again. So she was never rearrested. She just lived out a normal life as soon as she got away from her sister. Oof. Crazy. Yeah, man. But that's it. That's the Poppin' Sisters. Oh, man, that's some oof, dark stuff popping right there. Nice. <laughs> just layers after layers, man. Oh, man. But God, I'm, they just yeah. snapped. And more than just snap, like, you know, you hit somebody with a pot and you accidentally kill them and you're like, oh my God, no, it's crazy. But you fucking beat them to death. You gouge their eyes out and then you just stab them repeatedly and mm -hmm. hit them with a hammer. I was reading that the investigators uh, figured that they they were able to dis decipher that the attack had lasted almost two hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they took their time with it. <sighs> yeah. Now, the other thing was that I was surprised to find that there were actually crime scene photos. You can see a bunch of pictures of the sisters, but Jake, I want you to take a look real quick. Oh my god. You can see the bodies of the sister and the mother. Do you have the image pulled up? I'm getting there. Okay. I got it pulled up if you want to see it over here. I'll just come over. Oh my god. I can't wait. Yeah, this the shit is my life right now. graphic. Holy shit. That's a face. Oh. There's just nothing up here. That's graphic. I wish I could stop looking, but I can't. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's something, just there's something wrong with this, Dylan. All over the place, man. Yikes. That's on another level. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, man, oh, man. Now, we probably away. cannot post this image because I feel like Instagram would take offense to that. Someone would report it. Someone would report it. Just look it up. Understandably if you're as morbid so. as we are, just look it up. But just take a look. Uh, if you want to match up your reaction with Jake's, then take a look at... Uh, you can just look up the Poppin, P-A-P-I-N, sisters' bodies. It'll be like the first image. Yeah, the first image on Google Images is the one I have pulled up here. And you can see... Just viscera, gore. Um, if you've seen Hereditary, you know Charlie's head? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of like the more mild version of what these women look like now. But yeah, that's it, man. That is the Poppin' Sisters all the way from France. All the way from France. God, that was crazy. That photo. Yeah, man. That image. That image is pretty intense. That's intense. That's a definitely a fatality. God damn it. There it is again. Mm -hmm. Every time I take a drink of this root beer, it catches me off guard. I've not gotten used to it yet. You dork. Had to bring it full circle. Anyway, that was it. Thank you for listening. Glad you enjoyed it. We're going to take a short break here, and then we're going to hear this very exciting topic from Jake. It's very exciting. All right. Well, we will be right back. And we have returned All right. for part two. I know that we're going to put a disclaimer in there, but I'm telling you, this murder that I'm going to talk about is 
dark and it is difficult. So if you've got problems with, I mean, if you've got problems with that, you probably don't listen to our podcast anyway. That's fair. But um, it's even worse than usual. <laughs> Just letting you know. Um, and you know how we always talk about how this topic is going to be a long one because usually when I put a topic together, I have about six or seven pages. This thing's got 13 pages to it. Holy shit, Jake. It's even more than, uh, than, what's his name? Ed Kemper. Gee, Willikers, bud. But it's good. I'm very excited to listen to it. Not quite as excited to edit it. Listen, um, okay, so here's the, here's the backstory. I, uh, matched with a lady and she invited me over after a couple of preliminary dates to have a sleepover at her house. And then she murdered you. She didn't murder me. Damn it. But she was into the podcast and which was really cool. And then she says to me after we, after we had, uh, finished playing tag and we're getting ready for bed. She says, do you mind if I turn the TV on? I like to, I'd like to fall asleep. And I said, sure. She likes to fall asleep with the TV on. So she puts it on forensic files. Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. My friend Rebecca also goes to sleep to forensic files, and I respect the shit out of that. That's really cool. So she falls asleep, and then she woke up about 30 minutes afterwards and turned over and said, you haven't fallen asleep? And I had put my glasses back on, and I had my phone out, and I was taking notes on this subject. Because it's like, <laughs> whoa. This mur- I was like, can you, turn- can, you- can you restart it and watch the whole thing without oh. going to sleep? Because it was crazy. Oh, my God. So this this murder is just crazy. We're talking about Jason Massey, who um, is a Texas murderer. He was executed in 2001. He murdered two people, but it was just fucking insane what he did. I'm going to give you a little bit of, of a synopsis, and then I'm going to get into it. So Massey was born in 73 in Ellis County, Texas. He was neglected and abused by his alcoholic father and his drug-addicted mother, of course. By his teens, he was a juvenile delinquent. With a criminal record, mostly for torturing animals and stalking people. Oh, love that. Mm-hmm. His mother had once committed him to a psychiatric hospital after discovering his journals where he wrote all of this crazy shit. He uh, detailed his fantasies about rape and murder, his hero worship of Charles Manson, his avowed Satanism, and his strong desire to become a serial killer. Oh, super cool. He was known to decapitate and mutilate dogs, cats, cows. And preserve their skulls in coolers as trophies. Oh, that's not as cool. That's all just the lead up. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into the people shit yet. We haven't gotten into the people shit yet. What county did you say this was? Ellis County. Ellis County. Probably in East Texas. All this crazy shit. In case you don't know, there are crazier parts of Texas than the parts where we live. And most of them are to the east. That's true. It's because you get close to Louisiana. Oh, Ellis County is actually literally right under Dallas-Fort Worth. <clears throat> it's directly under Dallas. It's just insane. All right. So we're going to get into the part where he actually starts murdering people. Now, I started I started compiling notes, and then I realized that somebody had written a narrative version of the events. Oh, shit. And that was like, oh, I'm going to use this. Hell, yeah. Like, I mean, it's like Truman Capote in Cold Blood, the way that he wrote it. It's not as good as that, but, you know, who can be as good as Truman Capote? But you get the idea. He mm-hmm. wrote it in a narrative form, so that's what I'm going to read off. This is exciting. Mm-hmm. It was a hot, humid day in Ellis County, Texas, on July 29th, 1993. It wasn't even that long ago. Only those who had to be were outdoors working. A road crew member smoothing the gravel on cutoff road that afternoon noticed something white laying about 100 feet away in the thick foliage not far from the bridge over Smith Creek. Whatever it was, the object was clearly out of place. 
he and another man climbed over barbed wire and brushed past the brambles and thorns. Soon they smelled an offensive odor and then saw that the form was human, nude, and female, laying partially on her back. One of the men walked over to the body while the other went to the nearby town of Teleco to call the police. What neither had noticed at first, but had seen as they drawn closer, was that she was missing both her head and her hands. Oh, boy. Now, here's a little aside. I know that if you're on TikTok, you know that there's this audio clip where he says, her hands were cut off, her head was cut off, her eyes were gouged out, her this was this, that, and everybody uses it, right? Yeah. Um, I actually just saw a TikTok and I sent it to all of our listeners where somebody's like, like just blissfully eating a sandwich. And it says me listening to doc- me listening to crime documentaries. Uh, and, you know, she's just like, you know, she's just tell you can tell she's just enjoying what she's listening to. But it's like this dark, this dark subject matter. But when I was watching the, the forensic files thing, I was like, oh, my God, this is where they get that clip from. Because mm-hmm. those are the sort That's of things so that happen cool. to this girl. <clears throat> the police the police arrived quickly to remove the corpse which from the amount of bloating and decomposition appeared to be a day or too old they assumed writes bill cox in born bad which is a book that's written about this mm-hmm. that the killer had removed the head and hands to prevent identification possibly he did not know much about the new science of dna analysis and might have assumed that without fingerprints or a face no identification was possible but they were in for another shock while searching for the missing body parts investigators came across another body Nearly 300 yards from the girl lay the fully clothed body of a young male, clearly no older than 15. His face was down on the creek bank, 20 feet or so from the bridge. He had not been dismembered. This body was difficult to reach, so the Teleco Volunteer Fire Department assisted with the removal and a team of investigators remained in the mosquito-infested area to go over the crime scene until it was too dark to see. As they're, This guy's really good because as as he's describing it, you can feel the... Uh, can you feel the humidity? Yeah. And the heat? I know exactly. He's doing a good job at it. Gotta say, this guy's a good writer. An autopsy at the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office, which served as was served a number of Texas counties, indicated that the boy had been shot twice in the head with a twenty-two caliber weapon, and the girl had been shot in the back with a similar weapon and stabbed multiple times. Her head had been removed at the base of her neck with either a hunting knife or an axe, and there was a lot of damage to her remains that indicated that the killer had stayed with the body for quite a while. The medical examiner thought it was among her worst cases. This is the only case I've seen, she said, on the Forensic Files documentary, where someone had had this much mutilation after death. Yikes. Oh, my God. On top of the dismemberment, here it goes. This is the, diff- this is the difficult part. The female victim had, been ex- had extensive wounds on her abdomen, thighs, and genital area, some of which appeared to be intricate carvings. Oh. There was a long deep cut through her stomach that looked almost like an autopsy incision. In fact, it seemed that her killer had reached into the stomach with his knife to stab at other internal internal organs like the liver. Both of the victim's nipples had been cut off and there were numerous bruises on her body and where she had been eviscerated. Her intestines had been pulled out and exposed. What in tarnation. Mm-hmm. At the place where the hands had been severed, some bruises suggested the use of handcuffs. It seemed to be a sexual crime, since her clothes had been removed, but there were no clear signs of sexual assault, either on the body or at the crime scene. I can't, you know, you know where they're coming for that. Yeah. While decomposition prevented a definitive analysis, it looked to uh, the medical examiner more like a crime of extreme hatred or anger rather than rape and murder. There was also an element, an element of fascination with the corpse, otherwise known as necrophilia. Hooray. Mm -hmm. 
samples of fly larvae on both bodies, as stated in the reports from the Attorney's General, Attorney General's office, provided an estimated time of death as being two days before, between the evenings of July 26th and the morning of July 27th. Insects had obliterated some of the wound openings, but the medical examiner believed she had an accurate read on what caused them. Nevertheless, she enlisted the assistance of a forensic entomologist in Illinois for a second opinion. Insects were his speciality. That's why he's an entomologist, dummy. And he set to work to recreate the conditions in his lab for scientific analysis. Sorry, I couldn't help it. (laughs) Cox points out that given what they had, they faced a real puzzle. Why remove the head and hands of one victim, but not the other? Perhaps the mutilation had nothing to do with hiding identities. Maybe there was something darker going on, but what? A satanic ritual? Perhaps. Solving this puzzle could help them with the motive, but they also realized that perhaps the boy's body had fallen to a point where the, where the killer could not easily have gotten to it and thus had no choice but to leave. The victim may have been spared the indignity simply by chance. The lack of clear answers was maddening. Looking for the girl's clothing and for other evidence of the killer after the bodies were removed, detectives came across a, a barb on the barbed wire fence that had caught several long blonde hairs. They collected these as possibly belonging to the girl, since it was clear that to leave her where she was, the killer had crossed over this fence from the road. For her, they had no clothing or identifying features to work with, so they searched the boy for some form of identification, and they got lucky. In his pocket was a black wallet with a library card from Terrell, a town in the adjacent county, adjacent county, Terrell, Texas, mm-hmm. bearing the name James B. King. They now had a lead, but it might it'd have to wait until the library opened the next day. A few calls that night to local police departments came up with the missing persons report on two kids from the tiny town of Garrett, a boy and the girl, and the boy's name was Brian King. It did not take long to find his family. So, Brian King, the boy, was from Garrett, some 30 miles southeast of Dallas. Detectives went there that night and showed James King, his father, the wallet retrieved from the boy. He confirmed that it belonged to his 14-year-old son who had been missing. He believed that the girl that they had found might be his stepdaughter, 13-year-old Christina Benjamin, who was also missing. So it's a boy and his stepsister. They asked him if he had seen anything suspicious. According to a statement issued by the Texas Execution Information Center, King said that three nights earlier around midnight, something woke him. And it was a car. It had honked twice near the house and then driven away. Brian, he knew, was sleeping outside in a hammock, something he had never done before. So when it sounded like the vehicle had returned, he looked outside and saw that a tan car had pulled up, turned off its lights, and parked near the house. That roused the elder king from bed, and he went to the front door to investigate. He saw that Brian was talking to someone inside and figured it must be one of Brian's friends. Someone in the back seat had long, light-colored hair with fuzzy texture. He could not see the driver. Not yet concerned, he went to the bathroom, but when he came back, Brian and the car were both gone. He waited for an hour, but Brian did not return. So King decided to go back to bed and speak to his son in the next morning about his unusual behavior. But Brian did not come home that night or the next morning. When the family searched the house, they realized that Christina was also missing. Calls were made to people they knew, and neither, but neither of the children could be located. King and his wife went out searching on their own, but turned up nothing. So after another day, they filed a missing persons report. Christina's younger sister, who slept in the same room with her, offered some intriguing information. Apparently, Brian had come in to wake Christina to urge her to sneak out. It had sounded prearranged. 
While the possibility of some kind of drug deal retaliation was discussed among the investigators, it became clear that after talking with the parents that they were good kids who were usually obedient and did not make a habit of sneaking away. Brian had been bored lately, but there was no evidence that he was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Everyone who knew him liked him. Photographs of Christina showed her, be a, showed her to be a blonde girl with long hair, so investigators asked for samples of her hair to compare to what they had found on the barbed wire fence. They received her hairbrush, around which strands of blonde hair were wound. The family also provided an x-ray of a recent injury to Christina's foot from an accident at school. Investigators took these items to be analyzed, but felt sure that they had learned the identity of their, Dane, of their Jane Doe. Two kids had gone out for one, on one night for a lark, only to meet an unexpected fate that would turn out to be more twisted and evil than anyone yet imagined. Yikes. Mm-hmm. The x-ray of Christina's ankle injury proved to match to what the medical examiner had discovered about the, cor about the corpse at the autopsy. However, they, not, they did not find a match between her hair to a blonde hair found on Brian King's trousers. That meant it could have come from the killer. Here we go. The evidence technician from the Southeast for, Southwest Forensic Institute also picked up a tiny fiber on Brian's sneaker. I looked at the fiber on the male victim's shoes using a microscope. Um, he told Forensic Files, I've been using these types of carpet fibers before. I've seen these types of carpet fibers before, usually from Japanese vehicles. So that was my communication to the police, to the police that it may be from a tan vehicle of Japanese make. The last time Brian King was seen alive, he had entered what his father described as a tan car. Thus, if they found the car, that had a possible physical link between Brian and his killer. Hell yeah. What seemed most ominous about the case was, that the, was the fury in which the killer had attacked Christina. Unless it was a specific revenge killing, it suggested that this person was going to kill again. Asking around, investigators learned from neighbors that on the night the two disappeared, they had intended to go out with a boy named Jason. No one seemed to know his last name. Never trusted Jason. Never trusted Jason. Apparently, there's a thing where women aren't supposed to date guys with J names. And I've got a friend who sends me TikToks about it all the time. She oh, makes fun of me because of it. No. I'm like, I have no idea. There's nothing I can do about that. Anyway, enough about that. Okay. Then... They learned that people had seen a young man currently working as a roofer carrying a pistol. Another man named Christopher no Nowlin, not Nolan, damn, not Nolan, was questioned about his association with the two kids, and he admitted knowing them. When he asked if he knew whom, who might have done such a crime, he offered a name, and the name was Jason Massey. Jason Massey. He knew of a plan involving Massey going to Christina's house on some night in July, honking twice, and then meeting her after midnight. Um... Nowlin thought Jason Massey was weird and he and knew that he had a history of mutilating animals and keeping their heads as trophies. He okay. had watched Massey kill a calf and Massey had told him once that if he ever heard about a serial killer in the area, it would be him. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. He liked to brag about things like that. To the police, that's smart. Yeah, to, that's really smart. Just to telegraph your, your next moves. To the police, that sounded like the type of person they were looking for. Yeah, no shit. No shit, Sherlock. So, they start asking about Jason Massey's background. Here it goes. He was a high school dropout at age 20. Um, he was about, he was age 20. He was a high school dropout. He was the child of a transient substance abuser who had moved from one tenement after another. He'd born in, he had been born in 73 to a single mother who neglected him to go into bars and often beat him with a belt or paddle. His mother fed herself before him and hid food in her room, according to what um, a woman named Carol Ann Davis discovered and what 
was said in the trial. So Jason and his younger sister lived with constant need. The family moved frequently. Someone else said that if she ever woke up and found them sneaking into the room trying to find trying to find food that they would beat that she would beat them uh the family moved frequently even even living in a car at times so when jason came across those who were weaker he reversed his role from victim to victimizer a typical progression for males he beat younger kids and tortured cats by his early teen years he was drinking alcohol excessively and taking drugs jason turned out to have a record of petty crimes which we see in serial killers Mm -hmm. stalking and animal abuse which we see in serial killers all the time he had tried befriending a girl, and when she showed little interest, he allegedly killed her dog to teach her a lesson. Oh. Mm-hmm. Earlier in 1993, the police had stopped him for suspected intoxication and found a cat in his car with a noose around its neck. Um, it's disputed as to whether the cat was dead or alive, but it's horrible. And there was also a number of sharp tools. So for this, he was sentenced to 120 days in jail, but got out early enough, early enough to be a suspect in these murders. And that wasn't all oh boy of course it wasn't of course not it only gets hits just keep on coming a couple of days before the discovery of the bodies says uh, a police lieutenant ns police had received a call about a calf that that had been mutilated behind the mcdonald's oh when they when they arrived they found an abandoned 1982 subaru tan colored subaru not the Japanese car and a bracelet on the ground engraved with the name jason Someone had run from the scene who was soon identified as Jason Massey. Wow, he just did everything wrong. He did everything wrong. Almost like he wants to get caught. Oh, no. With all these indicators pointing to him, investigators decided to bring Massey in for questioning. Massey was arrested and charged with capital murder. When the handcuffs went went over his wrists, he offered a broad smile and also did for his mugshot. Jesus. Cox write that the police involved thought that no one could remember when a suspect ever looked happier. To them, it seems strange. Like he's fucking crazy. Yeah. Because he is. Yeah. So, they got a search warrant to go into his house, where they found newspaper clippings about the murders, a stash of pornography, a knife box. Knife box. Knife box. Mm-hmm. And handcuffs that appeared to have traces of blood on them. Books that indicated an interest in satanic cults and in police procedure were also found, as were a few articles of female clothing. Searching Massey's suspiciously clean Subaru, they found tiny bloodstains in the car and on a knife and hammer, all of which they collected for analysis. They also found duct tape, electrical tape, and more blonde hairs, and a leaf that appeared to have blood on it. So they confiscated confiscated the car and they removed it to the lab for specialists to go over all of the evidence. Then they went to talk with Massey, who was sitting in jail. They showed him photos of the crime scene, asking him to look at Christina and pressuring him to put himself back into the night. His response, which was reenacted on forensic files, was to gag in such a way that implied guilt to them and and knowledge of the crime. They asked him about his earlier arrest and the rumors of his cruelty to animals. He denied the allegations and said that he did not know either of the victims, but then provided a hypothetical location for the body parts that they were trying to find. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. He even then took he even took them out to show them what he meant, but our, after hours of searching in the woods, they came back with nothing. After that, Massey asked for an attorney, and that was the end of his questioning. Then came an, came an anonymous phone call to the Ellis County Sheriff's Office. The caller said that they, that they should be looking for a boy named Jason Massey. 
He called again with an attorney and said that he had known Jason in Dallas and had a lot to tell. He was questioned later for use in court. Searching for more witnesses to piece together a timeline uh, for Massey leading up to the estimated time of the murders, they found a girl named Christina Irwin, who resembled Christina Benjamin. He has a type. And had seen Massey most of the evening on the night of July 26th. He had left her, she said, sometime after 11 o'clock. She thought he'd been acting strangely. His sister told police she had seen Jason with a pistol and a box of Walmart from Walmart, a pistol and a box from Walmart containing handcuffs. A Walmart clerk who remembered items like this picked Jason Massey out of a lineup as the person to whom he had sold 22 caliber bullets, two knives, and a pair of handcuffs on July 22nd. It also turned out that Massey's cousin owned a 22 caliber pistol, which he had left at his grandmother's house, accessible to Massey, and which was now missing. Massey's picture was printed in the newspaper, and the owner of, the car, of a car wash came forward to say that late in July, he had seen the boy throwing something into the trash bin around 11.30 one night. The boy had then backed up his tan Subaru to leave, but he realized he was being watched, and so he had to pull up to a car vacuum to clean out his car. Okay. So he just drove in to use the trash can and then realized that that looks suspicious. Yeah. Police went to where the bin had been dumped and went through the contents from the car wash vacuum. Altogether, they recovered a payroll receipt with Massey's name on it and a red bandana with blonde hair stuck in it. Finally, the lab results were in. The rug fiber found on Brian's shoe proved to be significantly similar under a microscope to fibers found from Massey's tan car, as did the blonde hairs from the bandana and the one picked off of Jason's clothing. DNA testing using um, using this particular method matched the blood from Massey's car seat and other areas along with the knife, the handcuffs, the leaf, and the hammer taken from the car to Christina Benjamin. The odds that only she was the source of the origin were good enough for court. They believed that she might have been transported in the car while bleeding. There was also a blood clot on the clump of hair that had been found on the ground where her head could have been before it was removed. That, too, proved to be highly likely to be related to the blood in the car. The hair from that clump was also microscopically linked to the hair strands caught on the barbed wire fence, hair from Christina's brush, and a strand of hair found in Massey's car. The FBI then confirmed the fiber analysis. So, everything they need. Smoking gun and everything. Yeah. See here. The entomologist checked in with the results. The insect evidence taken from the bodies indicated that the deaths had occurred any time from midnight on July 26th until the next morning. So gave him about a 10-hour time span. But that's exactly when the kids were missing. Everything is here. Things were adding up, both physically and circumstantially, and no one was giving Massey an alibi. Most people to whom he had revealed his dark side seemed to think he was strange or even frightening. A ninth-grade teacher had told police that Massey had been obsessed with swastikas and morbid images and often talked about killing. His idol was Charles Manson. Oh, Jesus. Mm -hmm. He carried around an article about Manson, Manson and always placed it on his desk to look at as if for inspiration. According to the teacher, uh, Jason had told her that Manson might have a good reason to kill people, which would have been made his crimes acceptable. When she had a meeting with him and his mother, she noticed that the mother was rather abusive. Jason also indicated to her that 1993 would turn out to be as important as 1969, which was the year of the Manson murders. Between this, the reports of repeated animal abuse, and the people who said that Jason was always talking about killing girls, the police believed they had a real monster on their hands. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, no shit. Jesus Christ. 
yet they still did not have a clear motive for the, motive for the double homicide. So of course they're just after it. So they consulted with the FBI's Behavioral Science Investigative Support Unit, providing them with a full description and photos of the crime and the crime scene. So the FBI profilers told the DA that these murders had not been sexually motivated. And that surprised the DA since the girl was nude and her clothing was taken from the scene. But the profilers insisted that the person, this person had other motives and said they should be looking for someone who might have a history of abusing animals. So there you go. Grubb knew, that's the DA, knew what, that's exactly what they had. The profilers went on to describe the killer as organized, antisocial, and fitting the typical behavior profile of what they call a lust murderer. God, this is... I shouldn't be so excited to be reading this, but this is exactly the kind of stuff that we love. I know. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is terrible, but this is the perfect kind of story. I mean, this is exactly the kind of shit that we look for because it's just like, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. And then sometimes you see a person who is so fucking in love with Charles Manson, who is so fucking horny for murder and nobody says anything about it until they're like, hey, we're pretty sure this guy murdered somebody. If I knew somebody who was carrying around a letter of fucking Charles Manson and displaying it on his desk, I and everyone else should just alert everybody. Yeah. I mean, Stop this behavior before it progresses. You would think that this kid would be this. This would be the guy, guy who shows up to second period with a gun. Exactly exactly or like i mean it's no surprise after you after you just this mound of evidence of what kind of person he is i mean obviously he's gonna kill somebody eventually yes Oof. it is just hitter after hitter when it comes to the weird shit that this guy is doing it is red flag after red mm -hmm. flag so he's a lust murderer what excited him was torture and mutilation and possibly even a bit of necrophilia of course. Such people were driven by violent fantasies, and when opportunity and tension crossed paths, the result was usually destructive. This person would abuse substances and would have a car and be fairly mobile. He would collect weapons and take souvenirs from the crime scene. He would also attend to the media coverage and collect articles about his crime. The motive was typically wrapped up in rejection, hostility towards society, and an erotic attraction towards violence. So that's the psychological profile of who they should be looking for. That's what the FBI does sounds exactly like jason massey exactly in short it was a thrill kill fueled by rage the target was the girl the boy just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and was probably killed first that's exactly what he did mm -hmm. exactly what he had investigators investigators also learned learned that in june of 1991 a state psychiatrist had examined massey at the request of his mother who had come across two notebooks that contained massey's journals kept since 1989 she was disturbed by their violent contact content especially his list of names of girls he wanted to kill and wanted her son evaluated the psychiatrist read and copied the journals which had been kept over the past six months and learned that jason had an obsessive fantasy life and was enamored of the idea of becoming a serial killer in fact he described it as a sacred journey he listed specific girls he wanted to rape and kill as a way to engrave his name on society Apparently, he wanted to reap as much sorrow and suffering on others as he could. He described himself as a student of police procedure, ensuring that when he finally got around to committing these crimes, he would know ways to avoid getting caught. Apparently, he forgot all of those ways. Yeah, apparently. When he got this is to that it. fucking guy who's like, man, don't fuck with me. I've watched all of CSI, and I'll fucking kill you, and then immediately gets arrested. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to get away with it. 
I watch all that CSI. And then he's like, no, you're the worst. So as the psychiatrist made his way through these journals, it was apparent to him that Massey had actually made plans and purchased weapons, turning fantasies into action, which increased the danger that he would act out and possibly kill someone. Well, it's difficult to, to, to predict when someone is truly a threat. These are among the signs that make that make a threatened action more likely to happen than not really. Psychiatrists concluded that Massey did indeed, did indeed pose a threat to others and might even be suicidal. Yeah, sounds sounds like he's got some sort of something goofed up there. For real. This guy is cuckoo. Crazy. So, because of all of this, because of the psychiatric evaluation, Massey was committed to the Dallas Psychi- Psychiatric Intensive Care Unit for further observation. Um, and although the psychiatrist knew there was no real treatment for antisocial personality disorder, they still did it. They examined the young man, but they did not agree. The 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 psychiatrist in the uh, intensive care unit did not agree with um, the prognosis. So Massey was released. Jesus Christ. But... DeCleva, that's his name, that's the uh, that's the psychiatrist, he still had the journals and they confirmed for prosecutor Clay Strange what the FBI anal- analysts had said. Massey wanted to kill just for the sexual thrill. In fact, he had been obsessed with it for several years. On March, ni- on March 17th, 1994, Jason Massey was indicted on two counts of capital murder, to which he pled not guilty. In his letters from prison, he expressed his belief that he'd soon be free again and without restraint, which is just crazy. That's... A horrifying thing to say. That's just insane. That just tells you that he's just so crazy. He's obviously the person that murdered these people. Mm -hmm. So. And obviously has the intention of murdering again. Oh, he's going to do it again. The prosecutor's team worried about over that possibility. The trial would hinge on just how well they could teach the jury about scientific analysis and weave it into the circumstantial evidence because apparent because again, when we talk about this a lot, we don't talk about it as much, but we should talk about it. All they have is circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Okay, they got fibers and stuff like that. That's all circumstantial. You don't have somebody saying, "Yeah, I saw him pulling out into that street. I saw the kids in the car with him. Um, he confessed to it. He showed up and he had blood all over his all over his body." They yeah. have none of that. Everything else is just circumstantial. You know, you don't have it actually tying him. He could have said, hey, um, I was in the, you know, somebody somebody took the car. Somebody stole my car. I didn't have it with me. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, um, given the short history of DNA analysis and the fact that the class, that class evidence like fibers cannot be definitive, st- things could still go wrong. So after three weeks, a jury was seated and the prosecution team said it would seek the death penalty in this case. The defense asked for a change of venue, which was denied. And on September 28th, 1994, the testimony began. Clay Strange's opening statement, that's the DA, that's the DA, uh, summarized the case. Massey was introduced to Christina Benjamin in mid-July of 93. He told the friend who introduced him that he wanted to kill her. Toward that end, he stole a gun and bought ammunition, knives, and handcuffs. He formed a plan to get her out of the house, and on July 26, 93, around midnight, put that plan into operation. He lured both children into his car, took them on a ride, killed Brian, and then killed Christina, and then mutilated her body. They had hair, fiber, and blood evidence that would physically link Massey to the murderers, along with witnesses who could fill in the gaps. But again, no concrete evidence that he did it. So, he had a court-appointed defense attorney. Um, He accused the state 
of an incomplete investigation, leaving out other potential suspects. He also pointed out that the physical evidence was based on probability and not conclusive, like we've already talked about. He believed that his client would be exonerated rather than convicted by the evidence. The Those witnesses from whom the state would use were of such disreputable character that their testimony would be shown that would be shown a, as a way to deflect attention from themselves. Some of them once had been suspects or two had a grudge against his client. It was clear that m- more than one person was in the car on the night of the murder and anyone else who was there might have been a killer. So, again, trying to poke holes in the defense. Yeah. In the, in the prosecution. Then the principals involved. The parents, investigators, medical examiner, and entomologist all provided the testimonies about the night of the murder. After that, it was time for the criminologists and biologists to explain their analysis to the jury. Finally came the other witnesses. So Christopher Nowlin, the one guy who knew him, he was in a, he was, uh, he explained how he had been with Jason when they met Christina. He had been riding in a car with Massey about 10 days before the murders, and according to reports from the Attorney General's office, um, convinced him to drive over to see Christina, who was a friend of his. He noticed Massey and Christina flirting, and they talked about sneaking out together some night. Massey's plan had been to come by around midnight one night and honk his horn. That would be the signal for her to go to the old Phoenix station on I-45 and wait. Massey had been had told Nowlin that he planned to rape the girl, mutilate her with a knife, and then kill her. But then Nowlin said Massey talked about killing girls all the time, so he paid no attention to the comment, just thinking that it was weird. What? If somebody talks about rape murder all the time, and then yeah, that just, doesn't mean ignore it because it's normal behavior. That's never normal behavior. That is not normal behavior. You need to execute him. Or at least tell somebody who will. Oof, oof, oof. So, on cross-examination, the um, the uh, court-appointed defense attorney tried to use Nallen's history of substance abuse to undermine his character. He also pointed out that Nallen and his friend Mark Gentry had it in for Massey for approaching Gentry's former girlfriend. But he admitted that this was correct, but it really didn't do... I mean, it did some damage, but then the girls who had seen Jason's gun took a stand, as did the Walmart clerk who sold him the items of interest a former classmate from seventh grade anita mendoza told the court that as early as in 89 and on and off after that massey used to make threatening phone calls to her harassing her with vile language and notes and telling her that he had dreams about killing her in fact her dog had been killed and mutilated in her driveway one one day after she had refused to meet him its blood smeared on her car she believed he had done it he had also sent her a magazine photograph of a woman that he had beheaded with scissors, telling her that this is what she would eventually look like. She read she read, she read sections of his shocking letters to the jury, which effectively illustrated how he equated obsessive sexual violence with love. Then, letters that Massey had written while in prison to a girl confined for mental problems were read to the court. In one, he said that he wanted to grab society by the throat and shake him with terror until they were awake and realized what's up, so they will remember who I am, when and why I came their way. Jason noted that July 26, 1994 marked one year since it all happened. That seemed ominously to point to murder, but Hartley got Jason's mother to explain that on July 27, 93, the day after the murders, Jason had gone to a revival meeting and had been saved. However, um, Clay Strange effectively proved that her son had exhibited decidedly unchristian thoughts in his behavior since his rebirth, which did not rattle her, but that it, but that it intended to affect on the jury. So they're trying to say, well, he's born again Christian. I'm like, no, I know he's not. Yeah, obviously not. No. 
Then Hartley grilled the lead investigator to get him to admit that Jason Massey had been the primary suspect from the start and that no one else had ever been investigated. The other man or men in the car that night were never identified. This could place reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury, despite the physical evidence that had mounted against his client. Hartley might have well have found some ground for doubt had it not been for a momentous discovery that occurred just before that phase of this bifurcated trial closed. In fact, in the middle of Strange's dramatic closing argument, one of his team was called out of the courtroom. It could only have been for an emergency. And here it comes, baby. Oh, boy. The big payoff. I hope you're hard. Oh, no. Because it's about to come out. I'm ready. A hiker walked, walking through the woods came across a scuffed and rusty red cooler. Oh, my God. It gets so fucking crazy at this point. Opening it, he was shocked to find the decapitated, skeletonized heads of several dozen animals, 31 in all. Holy With shit. Them, bagged in plastic, were four red and yellow spiral notebooks full of handwriting in crooked, evil-appearing script that were labeled The Slayer Book of Death, Volumes 1 through 4, The Thoughts of Jason Massey. What the fuck? This guy. This on some black metal shit. This motherfucking <clears throat> guy, man. Jesus, this is some yeehaw death note shit. Oh, man. Jesus Christ. Yee yee. The hiker knew enough about the case to realize that this was an important piece of evidence, so he called the police. Motherfucker, this is crazy. Isn't this crazy? Oh, my God, dude. I was, oh, my God. I was so excited when I was, when I was watching this. Something wrong with us, but yeah. The journal entries began in 89 and ended in 93, the month in which... The month in which the kids had been murdered. Inside, among other things, Massey described the episode in which he had killed the dog of a 7th grade girl, probably Anita Mendoza, smearing the blood on her car. He'd never been arrested for it, but now it was clear that he had done it. His other desires directly reflected the precise act committed against Christina Benjamin. It was like a signature. Personality determines behavior, and one's fantasies will likely match one's actions. After reading them, there was no doubt among the prosecutors about how thoroughly obsessed Massey had been for years with murder and torture. He wanted to become a murder machine. So, on October 6th, 94, while the prosecution team was going through the journals for the next phase of the trial, the, journey, the, the jury took just three hours to convict Jason Massey of both murders. Hot damn. Before the penalty phase was to begin the next day, Strange's staff copied over 500 pages from Massey's death journals. They then prepared a statement to get the jury ready for what they were about to see and hear. So they had literally a day to get this shit done. Fuck, man. First, there was the opening of the cooler, which gave forth such a horrible stench and the removal of several of the skulls. They did it in court. Holy shit. This cooler had been discussed earlier in the trial, but because because Massey's acquaintances knew about it, and now here it fucking was. The man who had found them, who had once been a neighbor to the defendant, acknowledged in the court that he had made this discovery. Then, De- Paul DeMomio, De the young man who had made the anonymous call during the early stages of the investigation, came forward to talk about his experience with Jason Massey. They had taken drugs together and talked about raping girls. He had killed animals with Massey and even assisted in an armed robbery. He was now a student getting counseling and living a good Christian life. Of course he is. Yeah, of course he is. When he had heard about the murders, he had called to tell the police to look for Jason Massey. He also identified Massey's handwriting in the Slayer Books of Death. It was the road It was the road he had been on, but family and friends had turned him around. Um, yeah, at one point, Massey assumed that this Paul DeMomio would be like his killing partner. Then... 
uh, Doctor Declava. That's the uh, that's the psychiatrist who done the the assessment on him earlier. Identified what he knew of the journals since he had read two of them. He believed that Massey was not a good candidate for rehabilitation. Dr. Clay Griffith, a forensic psychiatrist who had read through the journal's letters and the earlier doctor's report also concurred. He said that Massey's form of antisocial personality was too severe to ever successfully treat and would probably not diminish with age. He would always be a danger. An FBI profiler took the stand to say the same thing. Then came the journal entries. Fuck it up, son. Fuck it up, son. Which detailed, which detailed Massey's intent to become a famous killer. In these pages, it was clear that Massey had picked out one young girl after another, all between the ages of 10 and 13, to be his first. He had claimed undying love for them and the need to possess them, which he could only do if he killed them. That's just like Ed Kemper. Yeah. And just like Ted Bundy. Christina Benjamin had been just one of many, and Massey had apparently been responding to some inner demon that reacted badly when girls rejected him. They had to die. It was also clear that he was determined to do what he claimed he would do because that was the way to be a man, and he needed to be the best at whatever he set out to do. Apparently, he had attempted murder before, but had failed at it. That had not sat so well with him. In part, this was related to his hatred towards his mother and his desire to kill her. In part, it seemed to be influenced by a grandmother who insisted that he had to make his mark. Ultimately, his violence welled up from the feeling that the master, Satan, was watching him at all times. He wanted to do something significant, like an all-out massacre. He wondered that if he did not act soon, God would come and take the girls away from him. The defense, somewhat unprepared for the blow to, for this blow to their case, yeah, you think, <laughs> nevertheless managed to use the journals to some benefit, showing passages where Massey described being lonely, having doubts, and wanting to turn away from all this and be good. He had described being sexually abused by a babysitter when he was around five and being hit by a father who had left him and his mother while he was two. Hartley hoped he could drum up a little sy- sympathy. I get that. Some of this shit... You know, these dark things happen to people. I get that. But this guy is gone this so guy, far. This guy went... See, there is a definitive line where you can go up to and, you know, people will be like, okay, there's just something wrong with him, but he can get help. He can come back from this. That man saw that line and then pole vaulted over it. Yes, he did. He saw the line, and he just kept on driving at 90 miles an hour. He didn't give a fuck. Oh, yeah. He put a human being down on top of that line and ran it over Mm -hmm. with his Subaru. He also put Jason's sister on the stand to describe their difficult lives as children. children. But this backfired when the prosecution got her to say that despite all that, she had been able to live an upstanding life. The prosecutors relied on Massey's own words from his journal to prove the aggravating circumstances that would show a depraved mind. Massey had kept track of his animal abuse, killing 41 cats, 32 dogs, and 7 cows. How the fuck do you kill 7 cows? How the fuck do you kill 7 cows? What the fuck, Number one, cows are sturdy motherfuckers, and to be able to kill one takes a lot of work. Secondly... Cows are expensive, okay? Yeah. And no farmer is going to let you walk into their pasture and kill one of their expensive cows without finding out. Number two. No, number three. This is Texas. Everybody's got a gun. If you try to saunter on into a pasture to kill some farmer's expensive cow, he's going to shoot you. This guy somehow killed seven cows? 
I have literally no idea how he managed to do I that. Mean, I know that he killed two people, but seven cows? Jesus fucking Listen, Christ! There are people all There over are the people place. in Texas who value the life of a cow much more than they value the life of a, of a human yes, being. Yes, but there are human beings all over the place, and for the most part, the only people guarding these human beings is themselves. And a lot of people don't pay that close of attention to the world around them. No, it's something that. that we try to caution against. Mm-hmm. But it is... It seems it would be much easier to kill two human beings than it would be to kill seven cows. Because you killed two human beings, and then you get caught. Okay, we expect that. You killed seven cows and never got caught? Fucking how? Yeah, it's it's that's horrible. That's the part but that's baffling to yeah, me. Yeah, here in Texas, yeah, it'd be a lot harder to get away with killing seven cows than it would two people. I'm sorry. It just would, especially if there's, I mean, if you're a spree killer and you're killing seven cows, this is so horrible what we're talking about right now. But, but it it's so true. Sense. If you, Unless you thing. killed one cow after another to get seven cows in the same pasture, Jesus Christ, how are you getting away with killing seven cows, decapitating them, and then keeping their skulls as trophy? That is some fucking work. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, I, I get, get that it. he killed two people in quick succession over the same course of a night, over the span of ten hours, I get that, but seven fucking cows... Jesus. How like how long did it go on? I believe we're so upset about this. <laughs> there is something wrong with us. It's look, I mean, th- but there's a difference between like, listen, don't kill people, okay? Don't kill cats, don't kill dogs, don't kill other people's cows. Mm-hmm. Just don't kill anybody or anything. Come on, man. But I'm just like, okay, I feel like Killing cats and killing dogs. It sucks. It's evil. It like I can see how that would be easy to get away with, right? Relatively mm-hmm. easy. Killing two humans. We do a paranormal and true crime podcast. We know that you can kill people and get away with it for some amount of time. Mm-hmm. The cows thing. It's really baffling to us, isn't it? Living in the South gives you a weird perspective on things. Yeah. Like I said, God, okay, I'm going to keep going because we're already way too long on this thing. So he kills all of these animals, 41 cats, 32 dogs, 7 cows, moves their heads to keep with him to remind him of his violence. The evidence was right there in the fucking courtroom. It was clear that he had not stopped in July of 93. He would have killed, that if not, if he had not been stopped, he would have killed again. His greatest ambition, he wrote in these books, was to become America's most famous serial killer. He says, my goal is 700 people in 20 years. Yikes. After That's only a lot of people. Yeah. So, how long do you think they deliberated? Um, he had already been convicted. How long do you think they deliberated in the punishment phase to decide? Under an hour. 15 minutes. No shit. After only 15 minutes, the jury decided on the death penalty. Penalty. Before sending him to death row in Huntsville, Texas, the judge told Massey that his death would be more humane than the deaths he had inflicted on his victims. Yikes. Well, I mean, that's not saying much, honestly. On his way to death row, Massey said that he had placed Christina's head and hands in a pillowcase with her clothes and thrown them into the Trinity River. No one believed him because it had been inconsistent with his previous behavior with the animals. He liked his trophies. They figured he had buried these objects in the woods somewhere. Good grief. It's just horrible. There's there's more to it, but I mean that's that's the that's the that's the sum of it. We've gone so long. The rest of it is just about his motive, and you know we can do that on a Patreon episode or something like that. 
Yeah. I can tell you that that much. But that was a wild fucking ride, man. Jesus Christ, dude. This was a fucking episode. <sighs> we are making up for not posting last week. That's right. Gee, Willikers. Like a double episode here, baby. Damn, it really son. Is. That was some hardcore shit. Oh, my God. That was crazy. God, Jason Massey, crazy motherfucker. Man, it was hitter after hitter on this episode. <sighs> yeah. That one will get you going. Fuck yeah, my man. Oh, okay. So we're done now. Um, listen, guys, we love that you we love that you listen. All of our followers, we got a we got a really good Insomniac network going on. We do, yeah. On on Instagram and TikTok, especially. If you if you're a listener with us and you want to follow us, get on TikTok. Get a TikTok. You've, for, I'm deeply addicted to TikTok. Yes, he is. is. So, yeah. But we have such a good time sending us videos and stuff like that. And we will seriously talk to you and send you photos and tell you about our lives. And, you know, if you want to see photos of Boomer, more photos than what I, what I usually post. I swear to God. I was I was actually just about to say, join us so you can see cute pictures of Boomer. He does adorable things. What am I supposed I to do? I love that What guy, am I man. supposed to do? He's so good. My God, that floof. Ah, what a little man. Can you tell I brush, I brush him out like... At least once a day. He always looks pretty fluffy. He's, He's in good condition. He looks, yeah. He obviously is taken care of. Oh yeah. Anyway, yeah. Follow us on. Follow us. Become part of our Insomniac network. We'd love to have you. We'll send you funny shit. We'll send you spooky shit. Oh, yeah. You can send us whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It's a good time, man. We're trying to keep it cool, keep it fun, keep it wholesome, keep yeah. it spooky. We're friends with all of our listeners. It's yeah, awesome. Man. We try to be pretty interesting people, pretty easy to get along with guys. We are easy to get along with. Yeah. We're not nearly as weird as... No, we're, we're pretty weird. We're very weird, but it's like... It's a kind of weird. a comforting weird. Like a safe weird, I think. Oh, yeah. For sure. Like, we'll talk about murder, but you know we won't do it to you. No, we're not going to murder anybody. We're not going to murder anybody. We just can't any stop watching animals. this shit. We just can't stop watching it or reading it. Exactly. Oof, there's something wrong with us. All right, that's about it. You got anything else, Dylan? Uh, yes. So as a reminder, if anybody is interested in supporting us financially, we do have a Patreon now. We are both working on getting some stuff set up so we can start making some posts. But if you want to hop on that bandwagon a little bit early, um, you can find us. Just look up Too Scared to Sleep podcast. We are on there. Me and Jake are both working on creating some content um, so that we can actually get some posts on there and have some content for you guys to enjoy. But if you decide that you just want to hop on that bandwagon a little bit early, make sure you get the first access to stuff. Then go ahead and sign us up or sign up with us there. We've got two different uh, Patreon tiers. You also have the option to support us directly through Anchor. You can find the link in the episode descriptions. But other than that, I just want to say thank you. I know Jake said it. I've said it plenty of times before. But thank you guys for listening. You know, we appreciate it. And if you can't or don't want to support us financially, we definitely understand uh, not to sound like literally every company everywhere, but it's been a weird, let's say, 14 months. Uh, Things are a little bit funky. So, you know, just you listening is helpful and we love it and appreciate it. We love our listeners. If you know other people that would be interested in the show, send them our way. Yeah, we would love to support, have a spot yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can't support us monetarily, totally get that. Financially, that, that's fine. But recommend recommend us to somebody else. Get somebody listening to us. That's going to be so much fun. 
Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. You can have fun talking with your friends about all the spooky shit that we talk about. Uh, One of my favorite things is when I recommend a podcast to somebody and they start from episode one and just work their way up and I can kind of keep track of their progress. I think it's super fun. You may find it fun too. So send some people our way. We've got plenty of vacancies for them. Uh, We will welcome them with arms wide open. With arms wide open. Why would you do that to me? You know you're going to trigger that. You know you're going to trigger the creed. God, I didn't even... I mean, I couldn't even stop myself. It was like instinctual. I was like, oh, I got to do it. I got to sing creed. Right? Your eyes were totally blank. You were Just focused like, on something else. They rolled over and I had and like this... I went into this fugue state. With arms wide open. I don't even like creed. Under the sunlight. <laughs> God, stop it! Can you take me higher? God, fuck that! Why would oh, you do man. that to me? You knew I, you knew I, you knew that I grew up in that cult, and you did, did it anyway. I did. I had to open that door. I was trying to get away from it. I was trying to get away from it. Oh, if you guys know anybody who likes or hates Creed, send them our way because we'll do shit like this all the time. This is a this is a good clip to show to somebody to get an idea of who we are as people. But anyway, thank you all. Uh, don't listen to Creed. No, do something else with your life. Please do something more valuable with your life. Let's start. I'm going to turn on Creed Radio on Spotify here in a second. Don't you fucking dare! I'm going to do it right God now. God damn it! He's All right, doing let's it. close this. Up. Let's close this out. Close this out. All right. Well, from Jake, my co-host. My name is Dylan. Fuck Creed, and we hope that we have left you too scared to sleep. <laughs>